Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On May 7, 1976, a call was made to the police in Chicago about a suspicious vehicle. When an officer stopped by, they found a maroon 1972 Ford Thunderbird parked on the side of the road. The hubcaps were missing. The driver's side window had been smashed and the ignition had been pulled. When the plates were run, they came back to a Frank Colombo in Elk Grove Village, a suburb of Chicago. The car hadn't been reported stolen, but it clearly had been, so the officer tried to call the Colombo residence, but got no response, so he sent the report to the police in Elk Grove Village. A few hours later, the local police sent an officer to the Colombo home to inform them that their car had been found. On the porch, the officer immediately noticed that there were three days' worth of newspapers and that the front door was ajar. He called for backup, and when it arrived, they slowly entered the house through the front door. Inside, they discovered the entire Colombo family had been killed. That was, with the exception of 19-year-old Patty Colombo, she was nowhere to be found. This is Monsters. Patricia Colombo, who went by Patty, was born on June 21, 1956 in Chicago, Illinois, to Frank and Mary Colombo. Frank worked as a loading dock foreman in a shipping terminal and Mary stayed at home with the baby, affording them a blue-collar lifestyle. Patty was an only child for quite a few years, playing with another girl in the neighborhood and eventually getting a sheepdog named Mike. All that changed, though, when in 1963, Mary gave birth to another child, a boy they named Michael. That's right, they already had a dog named Mike, and they named their new baby, Mike. Clearly, they liked the name. While the other adults focused their attention on the new baby, Patty started spending more and more time with her father's friend, Gus Latini, who she called Uncle Gus. He drove a truck and delivered candy to various retailers, and he would occasionally bring Patty on his route with him. With their more frequent time alone, Gus began pleasuring himself in her presence and eventually started having her do it for him. None of the adults in her life noticed any change in Patty, and she didn't see them treating Uncle Gus any differently, so she assumed that what he was doing with her was okay. She thought about asking her favorite teacher about it, but Gus said not to tell anyone, so she decided against it. In the mid-60s, Frank Colombo had worked his way up to a management position at his employer, but he wanted to secure a better future for his family. He started a side business with some other folks where they organized day labor for the various docks in the area. The docks would get higher quality day labor at no extra cost, but Frank and his partners would also end up making extra money. It was a win-win, and it made the Columbos able to purchase a house in Elk Grove Village, a northwest suburb of Chicago. 
There was a park and a playground nearby. The elementary school was only three blocks away, and there was convenient shopping. The move was a blessing for Patty. She didn't have any close friends at school, so that wouldn't be a problem. She was also going to finally have her own room again. She had her own room until she was six years old, and then she had to start sharing it with her little brother. At ten years old, she was happy to get her privacy back. Those were all great things, but most importantly, the move would take her further away from Uncle Gus. She had grown accustomed to completing their regular ritual over the previous three years, but she didn't like it. Despite Gus telling her otherwise, she still believed that what they were doing was wrong. The move out of the city would put an end to her encounters with Uncle Gus. That would have been the case if her mother Mary hadn't intervened. Their new neighborhood had a lot of kids in the area, but none were Patty's age, so she began spending most of her time at the library. A library is not usually considered a potentially harmful place for children, but Mary hated the fact that Patty spent so much time there for some reason. At first, she assumed that Patty was lying and was really going out to meet boys, but when she showed up at the library unexpectedly multiple times, she found Patty there, exactly where she said she was. Then, Mary became convinced that the library was a place where perverts went to pick up little kids and she started sending Patty to the city to spend time with her godmother, Janet Gower. This, of course, pushed her back into the clutches of Uncle Gus. Once a month, she would spend the weekend with her godmother, but Gus would pick her up on Friday and have his way with her before delivering her to Janet. Patty eventually just accepted that her monthly assaults by Gus were part of her life. Then he started talking about going all the way, and she knew she couldn't let that happen. She didn't think her mother would believe her, and she thought her father would kill Gus, so she continued to suffer in silence. At one point, she considered suicide, but in 1968, her godmother Janet got married and moved closer to Elk Grove Village. That meant that she'd be able to visit her any time and wouldn't need Gus to pick her up and drive her into the city. It seemed that she was free from Gus once and for all. Now that Patty was developing into a teenager, her mother, Mary, became more and more obsessed with where she was and what she was doing. Patty didn't come home from school right away like her brother did. She liked to hang out with her friends. Mary assumed she was meeting boys. During the summer, when Patty spent her days at the local pool with her friends, Mary assumed that that's where she was meeting boys. She even suggested Patty go to the library instead of the pool. At least at the library, she wouldn't be in a skimpy bathing suit. All of Mary's insistence that Patty not meet boys just made the girl keep her first boyfriend a secret. Patty dated Jack Vermaskey for a year before she told her parents about him, but the relationship soured not long after. Like many teenagers, she believed the breakup was the end of her life. Her parents recognized that she had become depressed, but they shrugged it off as a phase. At school, her friends all still had boyfriends, so she started spending less time with them. When the school put together a work release program where students could work part-time jobs for school credit, Patty jumped at the chance. Patty had an excellent grade point average and was very mature for her age, so the counselor was happy to find her a position. The problem was that it was mid-semester, so all the best jobs were taken, but she was offered a job at a sandwich shop in a shopping center and Patty happily took it. The shop was inside a Walgreens drugstore and had a sliding door that was open during business hours so people could go straight into the sandwich shop from the drugstore. She liked the job. It was easy enough and her boss was friendly. 
Her boss's name was Eunice, and she was a middle-aged woman who was very down-to-earth and let her give her family free sandwiches as long as she didn't abuse the privilege. It would end up just being her brother Mike who would come in regularly for the free food. Even if Patty wasn't there, Eunice had no problem feeding the growing boy. Patty worked part-time during the school year and then full-time through the summer. When the new school year started, the counselor offered Patty a more desirable job. Most of the girls preferred working as a receptionist or assistant of some sort over being the counter girl at a sandwich shop, but Patty turned the offer down. She liked the job and her boss. In May of 1972, the Walgreens got a new manager named Frank DeLuca. He worked as a pharmacist but did double duty as the store's manager. He began coming into the sandwich shop for a coffee break while Patty was working and she was absolutely smitten. She thought that Frank was the most handsome man she had ever seen. She started asking Eunice about him, but Eunice told her he was too old for her. He looked to be in his early 30s, and Patty was only 15, though she reminded her boss that she was about to turn 16. After a few days, Patty got the nerve together to ask the store manager his age. He told her he was 28. When he asked her how old she was in response, she lied and said 18. They talked more, and soon she was addressing him as Frank when all the other employees called him Mr. DeLuca. He called her Patrish. The casual conversation, peppered heavily with flirtation, continued for a few months before Frank offered Patty a transfer to the drugstore. He said that she could work part-time until she graduated and then moved to full-time. See, when Patty told him she was 18, she also told him that she was still finishing her senior year of high school because she started school late. Patty jumped at the offer despite the fact that she wouldn't be graduating from high school that year. It was a bridge she'd cross when she got there. It wasn't long after he offered Patty the job that Frank moved to make their relationship less professional. When she got off of her shift one night, he waited for her in the parking lot and asked if she wanted to go for a drive. There was no way that Patty would turn him down. They drove to a secluded spot and Patty lost her virginity to Frank. From then on, Patty trained in the cosmetics department of the drugstore and then spent evenings with Frank at a little motel nearby. Patty asked why they couldn't go to his house, but Frank told her that he lived with his sister who was old-fashioned and wouldn't approve of their relationship. Frank took Patty on a whirlwind tour of sexuality. Their frequent meetings in the hotel room involved every kind of sex in every position and sometimes with other people involved. Frank knew that Patty was inexperienced and he told her that he wanted to show her everything about sex. He said that he wanted her to know what it was like to be with other men, and then he'd know she really wanted to be with him. Eventually, a pretty dark-haired woman came into the Walgreens and walked straight to the pharmacy. One of the other employees mentioned that it was Frank's wife, and Patty nearly had a heart attack. When Patty clarified what her co-worker said, they repeated it and added that her name was Marilyn DeLuca, and they had five kids together. Patty excused herself to the bathroom where she tried to compose herself. When she returned to her station, she mentioned that Frank didn't seem old enough to have five kids. Having their relationship be a store secret, she didn't want to just say she knew how old Frank was. So she said, quote, I thought I heard someone say he was 28 or 29. The co-worker chuckled and said, he's 35. Frank DeLuca Jr. was born on June 28, 1938 in the Chicago area to a working-class family. His father, Frank Sr., was a truck driver. Frank Jr. graduated high school the same year that Patty was born. 
After taking some classes at a local city college, he tried out for the football team at Purdue University and was accepted. After two semesters, though, Frank lost his scholarship. According to Frank, it was because he got injured, but others say he was simply cut from the team for not being good enough. After a year of labor work, Frank learned about a scholarship to the pharmacy program offered by Walgreens and took it. They would loan him the money to complete the program, and then if he worked for the company for a certain amount of time after graduation, the loan was forgiven. Before Frank started the pharmacy program, in 1960, he married Marilyn Curcio. Frank received his bachelor's degree in pharmacology in January of 1963 and was immediately put to work at Walgreens where he quickly climbed the ladder. Over the years, he had five children with his wife and was promoted to store manager in 1969. Two and a half years later, he was put in charge of the store in Elk Grove Village where he met Patricia Colombo. As soon as she could, Patty got Frank alone in the pharmacy and confronted him about the new information she had just learned. He admitted that he was married and he did have five children, but he wanted a chance to explain. Patty agreed to meet him after work so they could talk, and his explanation was exactly what you'd expect. When they got to the motel, he told Patty that he had married too young and had too many kids too fast. His relationship with his wife had become monotonous and they had stopped having sex a long time ago. He said that he wanted to get a divorce, but he still had to take care of his children and there was no way he could split his resources between two families. He assured her that he loved her and that he just needed some time to figure things out. Patty forgave him and she told him she also loved him. Then they had sex. Afterward, while Frank was laying next to her in quiet satisfaction, she told him, quote, I'm only 17. Frank was shocked. Patty then told him that if anybody found out about their relationship, he would go to jail, only if her father didn't kill him first. She said he was lucky she loved him because she wasn't going to tell. At the age of 17, Patty learned that her boyfriend was 35, married, and had five kids, but even that couldn't prepare her for learning that her mother had cancer. Mary had surgery to remove a large portion of her intestines and would be going through radiation therapy, but the doctor said the prognosis was good. He said the cancer hadn't spread far and he was very hopeful. When Mary returned home, she was confined to her bed, which meant that all of her responsibilities became Patty's. On top of that, she also had to take care of Mary, emptying and cleaning her colostomy bag. At the same time, Michael was taking advantage of her as much as he could. He would ask for pancakes with strawberries for breakfast and have her iron his favorite shirt for school. When Patty was four months away from turning 18, she wanted to get out of her house. Patty quit going to school and asked Frank to schedule her for full-time hours. Even then, she wasn't making enough money fast enough to get her own place. She was also growing tired of Frank's sexual demands and wanted to get away from everything for a while, so she came up with a new plan. In an effort to get out of her parents' house and as a means of forcing herself to break it off with Frank, she decided to go to jail. She knew she didn't have the strength to leave him on her own, so if she was sent to jail for a year, she would be forced to be away from him. It was a flawless plan, if you're a 17-year-old. For the rest of us, it was idiotic, but it gives me something interesting to write about, so here we are. On her day off from work, she went into the Walgreens and told Frank that she needed something out of her locker, but she forgot the key. She asked if she could use the master key and he handed it to her. 
In the employee locker room, she went into the lockers of two other employees, stealing one's wallet and stealing two credit cards from the other. Then she returned the master key to Frank and went on a little shopping spree. She wrote checks and used credit cards over a three-day period. She made sure to talk to the cashiers that helped her so they would remember her. When her co-workers reported the theft, Frank had to tell security that he had given the master key to Patty because another employee saw him do it. While they investigated, they suspended Patty, but she found another job as a receptionist at a commercial piping company. It wasn't long before Patty started her shift one morning that police arrived and placed her under arrest. As soon as she was placed in the back of the police car, she immediately regretted her decision. She did not want to go to jail and she did not want to be away from Frank DeLuca. After her father bailed her out, he called both employees she had stolen from and offered them money to withdraw their complaints, but they wouldn't. They saw Patty's actions as a cry for help and thought that she needed to receive some type of treatment. Her parents didn't agree and were upset that the victims of their daughter's crime wouldn't help them. To make matters worse, Frank DeLuca convinced his wife that Patty had only been arrested because her parents were really materialistic and they had put a ton of pressure on her. He suggested she move in with them until she got her life sorted out and could find her own place. Marilyn agreed, but she was not an entirely naive woman, so she had one condition. No fooling around with her. No sex in the house. It took a little convincing to get Patty to accept the idea of living with her boyfriend, his wife, and their five kids, but after enough sweet talk, she agreed. A few weeks after her 18th birthday, Patty moved into the DeLuca home. Not long after the move, Patty appeared in court where the theft charges were dropped. Her father had paid all of the debts and made all of the necessary restitution, so the prosecutor dropped the charges. At the DeLuca home, Frank began working on a plan to turn Patty into a model with himself as her manager. He had business cards made that had his and Patty's information on them and sent them to various publications with photos of his girlfriend in various states of undress. He expected offers to come pouring in, but they never did. At the same time, he was becoming more and more persistent about having sex with Patty in his family home. She went along with it, but was understandably uncomfortable. Frank DeLuca was only interested in making himself happy. He got his girlfriend to move into his house with his family and it made everyone involved uncomfortable except for Frank. He was happy as a pig in shit. She knew she needed to get out of that house. She had relied on someone else her whole life. Her parents and then Frank and now she wanted to be on her own and independent. Due to the arrest, Patty wasn't able to get another job as a cashier, but she was able to find a job as a receptionist for a small concrete company. She started saving her money so she could get her own apartment. When her father heard that she wanted to move out of the DeLuca home, he offered to pay the rent for an apartment, fast-tracking her ability to be away from the man he didn't approve of. She moved out of the DeLuca home immediately and stayed at a motel until she found a little one-bedroom apartment in a nearby neighborhood. As soon as she got settled, she called Frank and he came right over. When he showed up, he told her that he was leaving his family and that he wanted to marry her. This was the one thing that Frank knew would keep Patty from distancing herself from him more. He knew what to say to keep her under his spell and it worked perfectly. Soon, Frank moved in with Patty full time. He had dinner with Marilyn and his kids every Wednesday and Sunday evening and told Patty, quote, Two nights a week is plenty of time to give them. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Living with Frank, I mean, like just her and Frank, made his obsession with sex even more evident. They were having sex multiple times a day and Frank started bringing in other people again. Usually other men who he would watch have sex with Patty, often taking Polaroids before masturbating. She convinced herself that what she was doing was for him and all that mattered was that he loved her, but she didn't like the situation. Frank Colombo was paying for Patty's apartment, but he was adamant that Frank DeLuca was not to be living there with her. For the most part, she was honest with her parents about her relationship with Frank DeLuca. She told them that Frank was getting a divorce and they planned to get married, but she didn't tell them that Frank was living with her. She lied and said he was still living with his family, but while talking to her mother one day, Mary told her that her father was planning to stop by unannounced to see if Frank was living there. At that point, Patty confessed the truth. Mary must have told her husband because a few days later he called Frank at the Walgreens and asked if he could meet him after work. Frank agreed, but he called Patty and asked for her to be there. At 10.30 p.m. in the parking lot of the Walgreens, Frank DeLuca and Patty waited for Frank Colombo to show up. When he did, he pulled his car into a spot and got out, then reached back inside and grabbed a 22 caliber rifle. He ran up to DeLuca, striking him in the face with the butt of the weapon. Then he said, quote, You motherfucker, you're gonna leave my daughter alone or you're fucking dead. DeLuca was on the ground, a split lip, a split chin, and two loose teeth. When he got back to his feet, Frank Colombo drove the butt of the rifle into his stomach. He threatened his daughter's boyfriend one more time and then peeled out of the parking lot. Patty drove DeLuca to the hospital and while he was getting fixed up, she called the police and filed a report. When officers arrived, they asked if she wanted to press charges, and she said yes. They explained that her father would be arrested, and she said, good, go arrest him. And that's what happened. The next morning, Frank Colombo was released on bond, and he swore that he would never forgive his daughter for what she did. He promptly got to work removing Patty from his and Mary's wills. Now, when they died, Patty would get nothing. She was on her own. After a few weeks, Patty withdrew her complaint against her father in an effort to smooth things out between them, but he wouldn't budge. He refused to talk to her, but through Mary, he said the only thing that would gain his forgiveness was for her to leave Frank DeLuca and move back in with them. Patty told her mother that she and Frank would be getting married as soon as his divorce was final. She ultimately accepted that her relationship with her father would forever be broken. Her parents, however, would not stop trying to break her and Frank up, and that meant one thing to Patty. They needed to die. Patty had a friend who was dating a man named Lonnie Mitchell. Lonnie sold used cars, but he told people that he used to be a Cook County Sheriff's deputy. He claimed he was fired, but was waiting for a friend to pull some strings to get him rehired. Lonnie was the type of person who liked people to believe that he was powerful and had connections. This charade worked on Patty, and in November of 1975, she called the car dealership and asked if they could meet. In the back office of the little car dealership, 
Patty told Lonnie about her problems and told him she thought her life would be easier if her parents were dead. Lonnie said that he could make that happen for $10,000 per person. He asked her for the details of her house, the layout, types of locks, who sleeps in which rooms, and physical descriptions. When it came to payment, Patty assured him that there would be a ton of money after their death. Her father's side business had done well and the Columbos were very well off. With her parents dead, she and her brother would split their estate and she would have more than enough money to pay them. After delivering everything that Lonnie asked for, he told her he would let her know when the job was complete. Weeks went by and Patty called Lonnie, but he just gave her excuses. He said that there were people who had to approve of the job and told her not to worry. After a while, Lonnie told Patty to meet him at a bar where he introduced him to another man named Roman Subchinsky. Roman was the friend that was supposed to pull strings for Lonnie and get him his job back with the sheriff's department. According to Patty, Roman wasn't happy about doing a job without any payment up front, and he wanted to work something out. Obviously, the something was sex. He allegedly told Patty that she needed to have sex with them both in order for them to go through with the hit. The truth was, Lonnie and Roman had no intention of killing Patty's parents. They were just stringing her along, using her for sex. By January of 1976, Patty had begun suspecting that Lonnie and Roman were full of shit. She confronted them about it, but they told her it was going to be complicated to pull off the hit of two people where there was a third person in the house. Patty shrugged and said, do Mike do that if that's what it took. Lonnie and Roman agreed, but then time kept passing and her parents weren't getting any debtor. Patty pushed more to get her hitmen to complete the job, but they continued to drag their feet. Frank DeLuca had become completely convinced that Frank Colombo was going to take a hit out on him. He and Patty decided to go through with the killing on their own. On May 4th of 1976, Frank and Patty snuck into the home of her parents. Frank shot her father first, and when he was on the ground, Patty used a lamp to bash in his skull. Mary had run and hidden in the bathroom, and Frank found her and shot her once between the eyes. Then one of them also slit her throat. Then Mike was shot in the head. His skull beat with a blunt object, and he had been stabbed almost 100 times. They had somehow taken both Frank and Mary Colombo's vehicles and moved them to other places around the Chicago area. When Frank Colombo's car was discovered on the 7th, it set off a chain reaction that would end up with the discovery of the murdered Colombo family. The officers who first arrived on the scene only saw Frank and Mary's bodies before they left the house and reported multiple murders. Detective Raymond Rose was assigned to the case and when he arrived on the scene, he was told about the two bodies that had been found inside. They took note that whatever had been used to bash Frank's head in was not there. It had left shards of green and clear glass, but the object itself was gone. There was a rogue lampshade on the floor, so they assumed the makeshift weapon was a lamp. When they saw Mary's body in the hallway, they noted that her nightgown was pushed up and her underwear were pulled down. The large diamond ring was still on her finger, so they ruled out robbery. When they got to the end of the hallway, they went into the master bedroom and turned off an alarm clock that had been going off for who knows how long. In the other bedroom, they found the body of Mike lying on the floor by his bed. Next to him was a bowling trophy that was bent and covered in blood. On the desk in the bedroom was a pair of gold scissors that were also covered in blood. 
investigators looked at the rest of the property and noticed that other valuables weren't missing. A portable color television, a CB radio, a stereo, cameras, a shotgun, and there was a wall safe that didn't look like anyone had tried to pry it open. All of the windows were intact and there was no sign of forced entry. It seemed like a personal attack. Outside, they did find a 9-inch knife and a steak knife. Forensics technicians collected the bowling trophy and the scissors. They found a bullet in the carpet of Mike's room and they collected a number of hand and palm prints. Just before Mike's body was going to be placed in a body bag, one of the techs saw a single hair on his torso and collected it. By the time Detective Rose was done at the scene, he had put out a bulletin on Mary's 1972 Oldsmobile 98 and he called Patty to notify her of the situation. Instead of going to the scene, she showed up at the police station and immediately started suggesting that her father was the target of a mob hit. She claimed that Frank Colombo ran a mob chop shop. Investigators were already digging into Frank Colombo's personal history and they could find no connection with organized crime or that he ever operated a chop shop. Frank was as squeaky clean as they came. Instead of her suggestions leading the investigation away from her, it made them question why she would lie. Her stories about a mob hit just made the authorities more suspicious of her. After she left the police station, investigators kept their eye on her. It wasn't long before they found the report from when Frank Colombo had assaulted Frank DeLuca with his rifle. Police learned that the couple were not on good terms with her parents. When Frank Colombo's car arrived at the station, forensics technicians immediately searched it. Handprints were found on the fender and the trunk of the car, and the handprint was missing a left index finger. There were also glass fragments on the floor, which were eventually matched to the glass fragments from the missing lamp. The same day, Mary's Oldsmobile was recovered, and when they searched it, they found five fingerprints and cigarette butts from two different brands in the ashtray. The autopsy showed that Frank Colombo had been shot four times in the head, had his skull bashed, and also had multiple stab wounds and some cigarette burns. It looked as though the killer tortured Frank before he died. Mary had been shot once in the head and her throat was slashed, but the medical examiner determined that the gunshot wound likely killed her instantly. He also determined that there were no signs of sexual assault. Her underwear might have been pulled down to make it look like the motive was sexual. It may have been intentional to throw the detectives off. Mike was shot in the head once, had multiple contusions on his head, and almost 100 stab wounds on the front and back of his body. The medical examiner determined that there were no defensive wounds, so Mike was already dead or incapacitated when he was stabbed. A funeral for Frank, Mary, and Mike happened on May 10th, and the police were in attendance, but they weren't paying attention to the funeral as much as they were watching Patty. They watched her stand outside the church, smoking cigarettes and laughing and joking with people before walking into the church and sobbing at her family's caskets. A few days after the funeral, the police took fingerprints from both Patty and Frank DeLuca. Police also got a call from a young man who said he knew that Patty had tried to hire someone named Lonnie to kill her parents. This young man was the brother of Patty's friend who was dating Lonnie. From there, the investigators got a hold of Lonnie and he spilled everything. According to Lonnie, Patty was very persistent about having her parents killed. He told them that she had given him a map to their house, 
details of their schedules and pictures of all of her family members, which he turned over to police. He said it was also her idea to kill her brother because she said he would eventually figure it out. He also told investigators that it was her idea to give them a down payment in sex since she didn't have any money. He swore that neither he nor Roman had any intention of killing anybody. They were just stringing her along for sex. On top of that, Patty asked him to get her a gun. Lonnie was given a polygraph where he was asked if he was involved in the murders of the Colombo family and he was deemed to be telling the truth when he said no. On May 15th, police searched the apartment of Patty and Frank. When they arrived, both of them were there but they refused to open the door. The police officers began kicking it in, but finally Frank yelled for them to stop and he opened the door. In an ashtray, they found cigarette butts that matched one of the brands that was found in Mary's Oldsmobile. After the search, they took both Patty and Frank to the station for more questioning. Patty saw Lonnie in the station and confessed to trying to hire a hitman to kill her parents, but she said that she wasn't involved in their murders. Patty was charged with murder and solicitation of murder and taken to jail, but Frank was released because they didn't have any evidence that he was involved. They did, however, learn that he was missing the index finger on his left hand, which made him pretty damn suspicious. Eventually, Roman was also questioned and offered immunity to testify against Patty and Frank. Then, Detective Rose found an ex-girlfriend of Frank's who also worked at the Walgreens who was supposed to be Frank's alibi for the night of the murders. She explained that Frank wanted her to go out to see the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and then tell him all about it the next day, so he could claim that they were together at the movies on the night of the murders. She said that the day after the murders, he came into the store and told her that he had done it. He said he shot Frank Colombo, Mary, and Mike. He specifically told her that he shot Frank in the back of the head and the bullet came out of his mouth and messed up his teeth, which perfectly matched what the medical examiner had found. There was no way he could have known that on his own. Frank DeLuca was arrested on July 17th. He refused to say anything. He did try to ask, hypothetically, if he and Patrish pleaded guilty, would there be any way they could go to the same prison and be able to see each other? They had murdered three people, one of whom was Patty's 13-year-old little brother, and all he could think about was himself and trying to see Patty. While Patty and Frank were awaiting trial, another Walgreens employee came forward with information about Frank. The man was the manager of the liquor department and he said he'd become good friends with Frank. Before the murders, Frank had told him that Patty's father had put a hit out on him and that he had hired a hitman to get him first. When the plan fell through multiple times, he said that he would have to do it himself. On the morning of May 5th, the employee came in to open the store, but Frank was already there, burning stuff in the incinerator. He told the employee that he had murdered Patty's family the night before. He also told him about Frank Colombo's teeth and explained that he was burning all of the bloody clothes in the incinerator. He said that Frank told him that he put the lamp and the gun in a garbage bag and threw them in the river. One month before the trial started, an inmate came forward and told investigators that he had overheard Frank DeLuca hire his cellmate to kill two witnesses who were scheduled to testify against him. 
When they checked the records, they found that Frank's cellmate, Clifford Childs, had recently been released on bond and the address in his file was the home of Marilyn DeLuca and her five children. The person who bailed him out matched the description of Marilyn, which she later confessed to. Police couldn't find Clifford, so they took the two witnesses and put them under 24-hour surveillance. Five days later, Clifford appeared at a scheduled court hearing and was immediately taken into custody. He quickly confessed to the plan and gave them drawings and descriptions that had been written by Frank. Like Lonnie and Roman, Clifford claimed that he had no intention of killing anyone and he was just stringing Frank along for money. In June of 1977, Patty and Frank were tried for three counts of first-degree murder, three counts of solicitation to commit murder, and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. The evidence against them was overwhelming. They had multiple people testify who had been told about the murders. They also had fingerprints. They tried to use the hair found on Mike's body, claiming it microscopically matched Patty, but the defense argued that they never compared it to one of Mike's own hairs and it easily could have been his, which is true. Still, it didn't take the jury long to come back with a guilty verdict on all counts. Patricia Colombo was sentenced to 200 to 300 years in prison for each murder and 20 to 50 years for the solicitation of murder. Frank DeLuca was sentenced to 200 to 300 years in prison for each murder and 10 to 50 years for the solicitation of murder. The solicitation penalty was to be served concurrently. The judge ruled that the conspiracy charges were covered in the murder charges, so no sentences were imposed for that charge on its own. Despite the lengthy sentences, both Patty and Frank became eligible for parole after only 12 years. Patty had a lengthy record inside of prison starting only two years after her sentence began. She was implicated in a prostitution ring where female inmates were set up with correctional officers. She also had 20 infractions for things like contraband. She had a parole hearing in 2014, which was denied and the parole board noted that she should never be released. Frank was the opposite of Patty. He had only a few infractions at the beginning of his sentence, but became a model inmate. He also had a parole hearing in 2014, where he told the parole board that what he and Patty did was horrendous and that they should never be released. The board denied his parole and also put a note in his file that agreed with his statement. He should never be released. Some people will do anything to get their way. They will destroy an entire family, even their own, over something as shallow as their parents not liking their boyfriend. Those people are monsters. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. 
You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.